0: This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. delicious food that's more wholesome and at the same time costs less. Betty Crocker Cake Mixes bake perfect cakes Although the ration was intended to provide sufficient food to sustain five men for one day... You're listening to The Feast, where history is served with a dash of hot sauce or a squeeze of lemon, where we look behind those dates and names everyone knows to the meals that made them. I'm your host, Laura Carlson, and each week we're bringing you stories of how revolutions can start at lunch counters or how empires can end over dessert. Some of the biggest moments in history happened over dinner, and we are giving you a seat at the table. Can you remember the last time you had food at the State Fair? You know, the popcorn, the hot dogs, onion rings, the fried pickles, the deep-fried Oreos, the deep-fried turkey legs... The deep-fried, well, everything. Fairs and carnivals don't usually have the best of reputations when it comes to good eating. That is, unless your preferred method of caloric intake is battered and deep-fried. Which, hey, can be delicious. But if you're like me, you can only handle so many deep-fried Twinkies. What is it about fairs and carnivals that make us think of these treats? Sure, hot dogs and popcorn may be traditional fair food, found at Carnival since the 19th century. But what has led to the Battle of the Deep fryer, where each year vendors at the Minnesota or Texas State Fair battle it out for the newest and craziest, and usually fried, concoctions? Hundreds of would-be deep fryers apply each year to present their newest creations to the millions of visitors at state fairs around the country. In 2010, the Texas State Fair made headlines when they offered deep-fried beer. Yes, beer, to visitors. Entire TV shows and video blogs are dedicated each year to the newest and craziest of offerings at county and state fairs. So we're going to go to the fair today. The OC Fair just started opening weekend. We're going to see what's new. Today we're here at the State bear in minnesota we are in beautiful sunny california at the amazing stanislaus county bear last year was pretty crazy they had like deep fried kool-aid all right so the first thing i'm going to be trying is these candy bacon mini donut sliders the food i got is the deep fried nacho balls try with a little sauce here they're absolutely amazing very good our first vendor phil isn't called the fry king for nothing Famous for combining high-end foods with fair favorites, his decadent lobster fries are fit for royalty. Lobster fries at the carnival? <laughs> Hi, do you really have the fried peanut butter and jelly here? We do have the fried peanut butter and jelly here. We'll take one. Great, Two fifty. dollars by deep frying it, because right. we're at the fair. It has right. to be done. Much of the food served at carnivals, exhibitions, and fairs may not have the healthiest of reputations. But for many, these treats are a taste of home. Midwest state fairs are famous for their fresh-roasted corn. New York and California state fairs have long promoted their homegrown wine industries, joined recently by the local craft beer scene. Of course, you don't mess with Texas's barbecue fair stands. Meanwhile, northern states capitalize on their cheese industry to make each year's delicious fair snacks. Like the famous fried cheese curds at the Minnesota State Fair which Andrew Zimmerman of Bizarre Foods America was horrified to discover actually were shipped in from nearby Wisconsin. At the Mouth Trap Booth, Dave Cavalero oversees production of more than 55,000 pounds of deep-fried cheese curds each year. Nearly 3 tons of fresh cheese curds arrive each night. Dave personally unloads every shipment. Just don't ask where all that cheese is coming from. <laughs> Wisconsin? Yeah. Hate to say that, but no, they—they <laughs> they really are organized over there, and they've gotten to be quite big. We won't tell anybody it's a Wisconsin at all. Holy moly! If that got out. A sense of hometown pride in fair food may come from the origins of fairs themselves, originally organized to promote the best in local agriculture, industry, and, of course, homemade goods. Now, most state and county fairs in the United States date from around the 19th or early 20th century. New York claims the oldest U.S. state fair, first held in Syracuse back in 1841. Now, these early events were showcases for local livestock or produce. Not much deep-fried Kool-Aid or bacon-wrapped hot dogs to be found. Sure, people might need a cold drink or maybe a snack when visiting the cattle exhibit or admiring the pie competition. But the idea of coming to a fair specifically to eat food was not yet in the cards. But all that would change with the introduction of world fairs in the mid-19th century, starting with London's famous Great Exhibition in 1851. Over 6 million people from all over the world descended on London to see the exhibition, especially the Crystal Palace, the giant iron and glass structure built especially for the event in London's Hyde Park. Visitors could see the latest in technology and industry, not to mention cultural artifacts from all over the world. All of a sudden, fairs or exhibitions were now international events. Not just a county or town showing off its best chickens or homemade quilts. Fairs could now represent the culture and industry of entire nations. And after the success of London's Great Exhibition in 1851, countries fell over themselves to hold similar events. Cities such as Melbourne, Munich, Dublin, and Amsterdam all held international industrial fairs in the 1850s. And while mildly successful, none were able to replicate the success of London. New York had thrown its own in 1853, called the Exhibition of the Industry of All Nations. The city even sponsored its own Crystal Palace to attract more visitors. although a number of notable inventors presented at the fair, including one Elijah Otis who demonstrated his famous safety elevator, the exhibition barely broke even and was considered by most to be a financial failure. Even the gleaming palace didn't survive, catching fire and burning down in 1858. But the dream of holding a successful World's Fair in the United States didn't end in New York. Less than two decades later, Another fair was proposed with even higher stakes. A group of Philadelphian businessmen proposed an epic world exhibition to be held in 1876, in honor of the 100th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. For them, it seemed the perfect way to show the success of both Philadelphia, the birthplace of American independence, and the rest of the United States to the world. And by that point... The U.S. needed a win. The young nation had barely survived a brutal civil war and the assassination of its president, Abraham Lincoln, during the 1860s. By the 1870s, the country had yet to knit itself back together. Divisions between the North and South remained tense. And the country was also growing. The Western territories, areas like Colorado and the Dakotas, were just starting their bids for statehood. Many business owners and industrialists felt it was high time for the young U.S. to be considered on equal footing to the great nations of Europe. But popular images of a rough-and-tumble America were hard to overcome. The Great Plains full of roaming buffalo herds, the explorations of Lewis and Clark through raging rivers and epic mountains, even the gold rush of California in 1849. Yes, these were stories that conveyed the vastness of America— and perhaps a foolhardy but intrepid spirit. But it wasn't the image many in the East wanted to convey. One of cities whose cultures could rival that of London or Paris or Munich. Places of monumental architecture. Great temples to finance and art. You see, the U.S. was having a bit of an identity crisis. In many ways, people weren't quite sure what American meant. After all, what was America? What did you mean when you said American culture? With millions of people in the country hailing from all over the world, was there really something unique that could be defined as purely American? It was a question that in the post-Civil War U.S. had even more resonance. Could the North and South really be considered one nation again, with a shared culture? Was there an American style of architecture, painting, Sculpture? How about cuisine? That last question had bothered one Philadelphian, one James W. Parkinson, the most. A celebrated restaurateur in both Philadelphia and New York, whom you may remember from our episode on the $1,000 dinner, Parkinson fumed that American cooking had not yet earned what he believed was a well deserved respect. For Parkinson, the whole thing had come to a head in 1871, when the Archduke Alexis, fourth son of Tsar Alexander of Russia, had traveled to the U.S. for a much-publicized national tour. Alexis, who had been all of 21 at the time, had apparently had a grand time, seeing Niagara Falls, going hunting with Buffalo Bill, attending Mardi Gras New Orleans. But one thing had bothered the Grand Duke— In his numerous interviews with local papers, Alexis had but one complaint. When he had asked to be served traditional American food at the various hotels and inns he had stayed at, most of the hoteliers had simply shook their heads. No such thing they had said, unless, of course, you mean plain oysters or baked beans. No, the finest hotels served the finest food, which at the time meant French. This comment was enough to drive Parkinson mad. Mad enough to write a lengthy letter to the Philadelphia Press in July of 1874. Dear Sir, The concessions made by many of our hotel keepers to the Duke Alexis, to the effect that there are no American dishes, and that we have no American cooks, do not surprise me. In many departments of taste, and notably in the arts of costuming, confectionery, and cookery, the admission is well nigh universal that the French made us, and that we are the sheep of French pastures. So deeply rooted is this sentiment in the public mind that Paris is the great fountain head of all art and taste in these departments, that when an American confectioner or caterer makes any invention in his craft, he feels that, to secure its sale and to establish its popularity, he must give it a French name. The truth is that Philadelphia at this moment excels the world in the arts of the confectioner, and yet it will require the competitive trials and the authoritative awards of a World's Fair to convince Americans, and even Philadelphians, of this fact. Parkinson's open letter was a call to arms for the upcoming Philadelphia World's Fair, which was increasingly being known as the Centennial Exposition. Plans were already underway to highlight the best and brightest of a unified America. Each state would have its own building to showcase its own agriculture and industry. Meanwhile, giant buildings dedicated to national mechanics and government, including more than a few of the latest developments in warfare, would prove America's might on the world stage. But Parkinson was arguing for something else that the 1876 exhibition could introduce the world to a profoundly unique style of American cuisine. It was the first time food would be highlighted at an international fair, not just the odd water fountain or temporary snack stand. The 1876 exhibition would be the first to focus on the food with purpose-built restaurants and cafes dedicated to highlighting specific regional and international dishes. What makes Parkinson's letter so interesting was that he isn't so much defending unique cuisine in America, but what he saw as unrivaled local produce, the plants and animals American chefs had access to in their kitchens. From New England oysters to the southern Pompano, Parkinson was an advocate for local produce, long before the 100-mile diet or the farm-to-table movement. In 1874, Parkinson was arguing for the very same things that transformed the American culinary scene in the 1980s with the birth of new American cuisine, which happened again in the early 21st century with the farm-to-table movement. What about seasonality, you might ask? Remember, Parkinson was writing in 1874. Methods of refrigeration, even canning, were still in their infancy. So when Parkinson talks about spinach, he isn't referring to the canned stuff. No other country surpasses America in turnips, carrots, beets, cabbage, spinach, peas, beans, pumpkins, parsnips, lettuce, celery, melon, and tomatoes. Grapes in vast variety and luscious excellence abound not only in California, but in many states much further north. Even Missouri grapevines are now being imported into France. And Parkinson wasn't alone. The call for international recognition of American produce, and more importantly, American cooking, has been a subject of concern for chefs in the U.S. ever since. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Here's Dr. Tim Ryan. President of the Culinary Institute of America, discussing what he calls the American food revolution of the 1980s and 1990s, when American chefs yet again struggled to throw off European dominance in the kitchen and establish their own uniquely American style of cooking. Though some people say that this was an American food evolution, I really prefer to, to think of it as a revolution because we were really making a radical and dramatic departure from what had happened this new generation of chefs in America. Some like Wolfgang Puck, who came from Europe. Others were trained at the CIA, like Larry ford or Dean Fearing, or, or Jasper White. Uh, and some completely representative of the region they were born in, like Paul Perdom, uh basically looked to Europe and said, why, why are these folks the masters of the culinary universe? We have great products. We have great tradition. We have great history. We have all these ethnic influences, and we can do it. It was a really exciting time. From Parkinson to Puck to Prudhomme, it seems little has changed in the 100 years of American cooking. But back in the 1870s, Parkinson's letter didn't fall on deaf ears. While Parkinson himself had already retired from the restaurant industry, it fell to two Philadelphia wine merchants, Tobias and Heilbrunn, to spearhead the first Great American Restaurant as it was to be called at the 1876 Centennial Exposition. Built at the heart of the fairgrounds, the massive two-story, specially built restaurant could seat a total of 5,000 people at a time, including a banquet hall that could hold an additional 600. The building also featured private parlors, reading rooms, smoking rooms, even indoor bathrooms. Quite the luxury for an 1870s fair restaurant. The restaurant even featured a special pavilion dedicated just to ice cream. A nod to Philadelphia's well-established love of the sweet treat. But it would be an uphill battle for the great American restaurant at the Centennial Exhibition. Despite Parkinson's defense of a unified American cuisine two years earlier, this didn't stop fair organizers from opening a separate restaurant of the South as it was known which was built as a place for visitors from that region to rest and relax, even featuring live scenes of plantation life from the days of the Confederacy. There was also a historical New England kitchen, specializing in foods of early American settlers. And at the Women's Pavilion, the first building entirely dedicated to the industry and arts of American women, a cooking school was set up, complete with demonstrations. Even in preparation for the exhibition, the Women's Centennial Committee had published the first national cookbook of what they called Purely American Dishes, collected from over a thousand recipes sent in from all over America. But the cookbook failed to sell, barely generating enough profit to make up her publication costs. Despite Parkinson's promises, the question now seemed to be, were Americans even interested in American food? From the opening of the exhibition in May of 1876, the Restaurant of the South and the Great American Restaurant had to battle for the wallets and appetites of fairgoers against the French and German restaurants, which had also set up shop in the heart of the fairgrounds. Visitors flocked to the Trois Frères French Restaurant, a branch of the famous Parisian institution which had closed in France four years before, but had lived on through what we might call today pop-up appearances in international exhibitions ever since. Proudly serving exclusively Parisian food, the restaurant featured eight private salons and even sold its famous cakes and wines for fairgoers to take home with them. The problem seems to have been one of image. German and French restaurants had the air of class and expertise. American food found itself burdened with the image of hearty and homespun not the delicate concoctions of European cooks. A menu from one of the smaller cafes at the fair, Café Leland, gives us an idea of what was considered middle-of-the-road American fare at the time. Roast beef for 40 cents, mutton pie for 35 cents, pig's feet for 30 cents. Compare this with the menu at the French Lafayette restaurant, where patrons dined on filet of sole with white wine sauce, or venison, even foie gras. American dishes were often served plainly and with little fuss, considered food on the go if you will, as opposed to the opulent surroundings and high-class service at the Lafayette restaurants or the Trois Frères. Even when these so-called American dishes were gussied up, as at the Great American Restaurant, most faregoers with cash in hand headed instead to French restaurants, still the bastion of what was considered fine dining. Parkinson's call for fine American produce had stalled in its infancy. Yes, the produce of America might be among the best in the world, but how were you supposed to prepare it? American fish or venison, cooked in the French style, was still considered French. American food, it seemed, had yet to develop an iconic style all its own. But lurking in the centennial fairgrounds, were the kernels of what would become the most emblematic features of American food for the next 150 years. You see, it wasn't just France. The so-called Great American Restaurant faced competition from Germany, too. The famous Philadelphian, Philip Lauber, had paid $5,000 for the rights to open a German restaurant in the heart of the Centennial Fairgrounds, spending an additional whopping $56,000 on the building itself. By all accounts, Lauber's was the most popular restaurant at the fair, often simply referred to as the centennial restaurant due to its popularity, something that must have seriously pissed off the great American restaurant. At Lauber's, diners enjoyed German wines and beer, and of course, the best of German food, including what was to be the deep-fried pickle of its day, something called a hamburger steak fried mincemeat served as a patty on a plate. Rarely found in U.S. restaurants before then, the minced meat patties were, if you'll forgive the mixed metaphors, a home run. Ironically, the dish that would eventually go on to become one of the most iconic items of American food was served at the great American restaurant's biggest competitor. Within 10 years, Hamburger sandwiches, as they came to be called, could be found in restaurants and snack stands throughout America. The early forefathers of today's classic American hamburger. So American food did change thanks to the Centennial Exposition, but not in the way Parkinson had imagined. Apart from the hamburger, several foods became instant classics and went on to change the way Americans cooked and ate over the next century. The Centennial Exhibition was responsible for introducing the American public to another future culinary icon, soda. The powerful temperance movement in America had convinced many restaurant and cafe owners not to sell hard alcohol at the fair. But in the warm summer days of 1876, one of the hottest on record, many fairgoers were desperate for a cold drink or two. Now, soda water itself had been featured in exhibitions as early as 1832, But it was only at the 1876 exhibition that two inventive liquor salesmen, Lippincott and Tufts, paid $20,000 for the privilege of constructing a 30-foot-tall soda fountain in one of the main halls of the exhibition. This mammoth intricate machine, made of marble and steel, featured several dozen dispensers to add different fruity syrups to the fizzy water. And ads for a refreshing Arctic soda could be found throughout the fair, Soon, Tufts and Lippincott had more than made their money back, furthering their success by patenting the machine and creating the American Soda Fountain Company in 1891. Soon small but still highly decorated variations of the 1876 machine could be found in drug stores throughout America dispensing soda water, the forerunners of the soda shop so popular in the U.S. throughout the early 20th century, and the distant relative of canned and bottled soda like Coke and Pepsi. We'll put up a picture of Tufts and Lippincott's original machine of 1876 on our website, if you want to take a look at this beast for yourself. So the Centennial Exposition was responsible for giving America its soda and hamburgers. But what else? The industrial focus to the fair also saw a number of innovations in the technologies of American cuisine. The Vienna Bakery, another food stall, helped to introduce American cooks to another 19th century innovation— Instant Yeast Now, if you've ever made bread, you may have needed to buy a packet of active dry yeast to add to your dough. And odds are, if you were baking in the U.S., you probably were using a packet of Fleischmann's active dry yeast. You see, yeast is the organism that helps bread to rise. It eats the sugars and expels carbon dioxide, giving bread that airy consistency. But before the introduction of instant yeast... Bakers usually had to rely on fresh yeast, which was a bit more unstable and had to be used immediately before the yeasty organisms died. Fleischmann's invention solved this problem by dehydrating the yeast, more or less putting it into hibernation. Bakers could now just keep dry yeast in their cupboards, which would stay good for up to years at a time. When they needed the yeast for baking, they simply reanimated it with a bit of warm water before adding it to their dough. Now Fleischmann's company had sponsored the Vienna Bakery at the fair in order to show Americans that you couldn't taste the difference between baked goods made with instant and those made with fresh yeast, literally proving the quality of his invention. After customers connected the dots, Fleischman's product was a runaway hit. Fleischman's company soon abandoned their bakeries altogether and focused solely on making the active dry yeast a market the company has basically dominated ever since. Apart from advances in kitchen technology, the 1876 exhibition was even responsible for kicking off another perennial fair favorite in the U.S. Butter sculptures. You know, those sculptures, made entirely from butter. These fixtures of state fairs can be traced back to one Arkansas woman, Caroline Shock brooks who had made a name for herself back in her home state by sculpting the likenesses of her friends and family, and even apparently the family pets, out of butter. Thankfully, she was a farmer's wife, so she had plenty of the stuff to work with. After hearing of her unusual skills, the Women's Centennial Committee invited Brooks to showcase her sculpting talents at the Women's Pavilion at the festival. Her sculpture of Dreaming Yolanthe," which depicted a sleeping princess from mythology, was a crowd favorite that summer, and drew so much attention to the women's pavilion that the festival officials invited her to demonstrate her sculpting technique in the main exhibit building, which she did gladly for crowds of thousands. Butter sculpting soon became a feature of agricultural exhibits and county fairs throughout the U.S., and the rest, as they say, is history. The centennial exhibition may not have been the face-off between American and French haute cuisine Parkinson had wished for, but nonetheless it did usher in a new wave of American eating. From hamburgers to soda, the seeds for 20th century American cuisine were sown. And the 1876 exhibition had demonstrated that food could be a major draw for fairs, even a way of expanding the cautious mainstream American palate. From the small Turkish and Brazilian cafes set up for the centennial in 1876, by 1893 at Chicago's World Fair, even more international foods were featured, offering many a chance to sample cuisines otherwise unknown or unavailable to fairgoers. And there seemed to be something about world's fairs that encouraged a good-natured, adventurous attitude. A spirit still found at many fairs today, from the roller coasters to the deep-fried Kool-Aid. So the next time you find yourself ordering a bacon burger donut sundae at your local state fair, consider yourself the next generation in a long chain of American innovation and adventure. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Technical direction by Mike Port, who, for the record, loves himself a good deep-fried pickle. Not so much on the Kool-Aid, though. Music today by Jean-Luc Hefferman, the Victor Herbert Orchestra, Mychek Zolnowski, James Lent, Andy G. Cohen, Jazar, and Peter Rodenko. For more information, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Feast_Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And that's all for us this week. We'll be back in two weeks' time with more great stories of meals that made history. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast.